What's up, people? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. This week, we've got episode two of The Expert Explains, and this week, it's mental health at work. What an expert we've got this week, an ex-Marine turned psychotherapist. This guy, David McLean, absolutely knows his stuff, really gets into the detail. You can feel and you can hear his passion for his subject. Whilst technical, still quite simple um, and digestible at the same time. And uh, obviously I throw in a few layman's uh, examples, hopefully for us all to kind of understand. So let's get straight into the podcast, straight into this awesome interview with David. Let's go. Health and safety is almost a victim of its own success. We in a pressured regime of health and safety regulations. A huge fire engulfs a tower block in Children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school. Worst oil field disaster, 164 dead. Rebranding Safety, the modern health and safety podcast, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Riss Fluent and your host, James McPherson. So David McLean starts his journey uh, in the Royal Marines, uh, where he served alongside several commando units, including special forces and counterterrorism. Uh, took him operational four times, including Africa and Afghanistan. Um, however, even with that mental toughness and resilience provided in that military career, the operational stresses and strains of the civilian career led him to seeking some personal support, which then sparked an interest, and he retrained as a psychotherapist, and now manages a business which trains businesses on how to manage mental stress, uh, mental health and stress. So, David, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you. Do you want to talk us through that that kind of awesome journey then, pretty much, mate? That sounds <laughs> probably the most um, illustrious that we've had on the podcast so far. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it was 20 years ago or so, I think, when it first started. In fact, it is, yeah, because uh, the 20th anniversary, um, when I joined the Marines in 99, it is just coming up actually it's in july so it was a few years ago i can't believe i'm that old but yeah it was a few years ago actually that it started uh and i really enjoyed the career i, I enjoyed it uh, immensely in the marines but i, I was medically discharged actually for bad back and, and legs etc so um which often happens but um you know i was i was ready to look in, into pastures new enemy and it was really the people that started to interest me more not so much just the work interested in the kind of the psychology of people, why they were doing what they were doing, this, the, the behaviour, why the psychological behaviour, why they were doing what they were doing. And and, and I worked to a, a small extent, not that much, but with spotting uh, the early signs of PTSD in the individuals. So that's really where I kind of got my, my interest from. And from that point on, as, uh, as I said, I was sort of leaving at that point and I thought, right, I really want to help people. I didn't know what space to really go in specifically. And when you don't know about that, you just start reading psychology. So that's what I did. I studied psychology at Open University for a little while, um, which was great. And then I went on to become a psychotherapist. So to then really start to actually help people. That was great as well. But what I knew at that point is that what I knew was pretty much gold dust. And, and I can, can really... I can brag about it, as I will say, because the, the, um, the therapeutic uh, understanding and the model that I had actually wasn't mine. So I, I realised that what I knew and, and what we were doing was helping people. And my purpose really is to help as many people as possible and to help people to make a sort of lasting change within people's lives. So I wanted to, to somehow mould this and, and change. 
So along the journey, I uh, became the chief executive of a, of a nationwide association. I ran uh, at my own training school as well. Uh, the chief instructor helped um, psychotherapists, and, sorry, created um, new psychotherapists. But I wanted to push it further and I wanted to help more people. So the best way I thought of that is to work within business because there's many people there. I also wanted to work in the corporate space. Uh, as well. So with the therapeutic understanding that I had, the understanding of neuroscience and different versions of psychology such as positive evolutionary uh, and behavioural psychology and something called the solution focus process, I brought all that together uh, along with the personal development and the, the bits and pieces that I'd learned also through the years uh, in the, uh, the Marines, brought all together and created something called the Cognitive Performance Approach. And CPA, and that's really what we now um, deliver to businesses uh, across the UK uh, and Ireland at the moment, which is great success. Really helping people understand who they are, understand why they um, behave the way they do from an evolutionary point of view, like the limbic system you may have heard of before in the mind, understand why people have that fight-flight response, um, why we still do these things today from a, from a behavioural psychology point of view. Uh, and, and neuroscience as well helps with that. And then importantly, where are we going to go? So how are you going to implement these changes and so they last? And um, so, yeah, that's a quick synopsis. I hope that's hope that helps. Yeah, that was that was awesome. It's, it's such a it's such a big kind of topic at the moment. And I, I you know, and quite rightly, um, you know, that it that it's being talked about, which is which is massive. I'm a massive follower of like rugby. And um, mm. that's really, really started to come into that now. And actually one of my favourite rugby players, which is quite controversial, James Haskell. Not a lot of people like him. Um, <laughs> no, I like him. Yeah, he's good, yeah. I really like him. But uh, he, he talked quite openly about that stuff as well. And I find it yeah. quite fascinating. Um, so I suppose I suppose a good place to start would be for, for you to maybe explain to us what, what mental health actually is and, 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 and what in aspects of maybe like businesses and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've obviously I've touched on it there, but yeah. it, it, mental health or mental well-being, um, it, it can sort of the, the easiest way to describe it actually is what I do in the clinical days, is thinking about a scaling of zero to ten. <clears throat> Everybody's on that scaling, zero being the lowest that have ever been, and ten being the best that you can ever be. And sometimes we'll talk about mental health as people that have obviously problems, and it's a very negative thing. So people with mental health problems, you know, there's something wrong with them. And we'll often kind of imagine that that would kind of be maybe a zero, one, two, and three, for example. So people who are low down, they're maybe signed off from work, that kind of thing. And then there's people who are kind of sitting in the middle, and what they are doing is they're suffering from something called presenteeism. And people who have presenteeism, they're at work, but there's no one at home, if you like, if you want to kind of think that. They, they are present, but there's no one really at home. In other words, they're at work, they're functioning, but they're probably functioning at 50, 60, 70%. Because of the looming divorce that's coming up, or their child's ill, or the problems at home, or the issues that they're having at work, or the lack of self-worth that they have, and that might be another kind of aspect. And then you've got the people who are working at eights, nines, and tens, and of course that's where you want to be in a business, that's where you want all your staff to be, and that's obviously where you want to be as well, and you want to feel good. So mental health really is all of that. But it's often seen in the lower regions of the kind of zeros, the ones, the twos and threes. Like there's something really wrong with you and, and, uh, and uh, you should need to seek help. And almost, and of course it's moving away from this now, but almost there's a kind of sense of weakness within you if there's some sort of issue there. And just like you said with the rugby player, 
actually we're realizing now uh, males and females but of course the males now with this alpha male starting aspect starting to move away is that we can all suffer from issues with mental health like you touched on um uh, we spoke about earlier yeah i certainly have uh, and and, and I'm, I'm very happy to say that and the the chance of the, the the potential of being shot at of course in afghanistan for seven months certainly does that to you and there's nothing wrong with saying these things and of course you certainly don't have to be in that space either and um, it can happen quite easily i always used to say the nice thing that i used to say and it was 100 percent true in my clinical days only work with nice people the people who come in to see me in those days they were always really really nice people in fact the problem was that we were almost too nice they'd worry too much what other people thought they'd worry too much about different things whatever what things people would say when they weren't even saying anything so actually it's the best of society that generally moves down in there it's a kind of clinical thing it's it's the best of society that moves down into that kind of space and um, of issues if you like so yeah just kind of to top and tail that mental health um i like to call it a mental health and an emotional well-being as a kind of a better uh, kind of, uh, sort of way to describe it. And performance uh, as well. What we've sort of moved away from in terms of, of, of DRM group is, yes, of course, we're dealing with people's mental health, but really what we're doing is we're helping everybody become a better version of themselves. So we're seeing everyone the same. Of course, we're all unique, but we're seeing everyone the same in terms of the foundational facilitative approach of how we change people. So it doesn't matter if you're a zero. It doesn't matter if you're a 10. It doesn't matter if you're anywhere in between there. If you recognise the principles of change and how you become a better person, then we will increase or you will increase your ability to be a better version of you, which means you'll have greater mental health, of course, or a better mental health. You'll be greater, uh, have greater mental and sorry, emotional well-being uh, and become a happier, more content individual. So it's seeing it from more of an all-encompassing uh, point of view. That's really interesting. I like that kind of mental performance and emotional mm. well-being standpoint. That, that's quite a good way to look at it. I've always kind of, I've, I, I saw something on Facebook a while ago and um, it was kind of like two two dogs. One was a real short dog and one was a tall dog. And they both kind of walked through this really muddy puddle. And uh, obviously the short dog was pretty much covered in mud and the tall dog <laughs> just, its foot uh, covered. And, and yeah. like kind of quote over it was, was something like, um, you know, we could all go through the same puddle and the same kind of process in a day, but actually you don't know how people are dealing with that, yeah. that puddle. Yeah. And I find that's always, in my family, quite a lot of us have gone through stuff or, um, you know, some more than others. And, and like yourself, you know, some, mm. I think kind of stigma comes from some people will think, say, say for me, example, I would think on well, my, my, me suffering with mental health is nothing compared to David, who's been, you know, to war. But actually, mm. in my own head, I find yeah. that it, it can be equal. Is that right? Absolutely. Oh, it's 100%. Yeah, completely right. Um, the, the, the circumstances created, it's the perception really is where mental health becomes an issue. Uh, two people, I can have another analogy to use, and I was taught and, and often use, uh, is that there's two teenagers going to set the same exams at the university. Uh, they still, both of them have the same problems or the same issues to deal with. They've got, you know, they've got their finals um, to deal with, you know, they've got large student loans, all these different things. One of them's quite happy. They're just sleeping well, they're going out for a night out, they're doing all these different things. And the other one is worrying themselves sick 
and getting to the stage that they're having anxiety and panic attacks. So the thing is exactly the same. So it's the perception that's surrounding that event. That's really the key uh, aspect of that. So it's exactly it. It doesn't matter if you're saying it seems a bit more obvious if you're getting shot at or something like that, then of course you're going to be pretty stressed. But of course, lots of people deal with that easily because they feel that that's part of the job and that's okay. And they're in a kind of strange way looking forward to, to t- testing their skills and going to war and doing what they've been training to do for years and years on end. And other people, of course, there's what we talk about, a stress bucket, if you like, a stress bucket in their mind overflows and they, and they become really, really stressed. So, yeah, there's there's no point and there's no, if you have an understanding like I do and like many people like I do, is that you can't put this on people just because, you know, they should deal with this because it's only such and such. That's just not how it works. It's your perception of the events. And if you've been worrying about it for years, if you're what's classed as a warrior, if you like, then yeah, you're more likely to be susceptible to to different issues, whatever they might well be. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so I suppose from a personal point of view, then what what's kind of like what's I suppose it's obvious, but from your point of view, what's the impact of like not managing your own kind of emotional well-being and, and mental performance? Yeah, I mean it's detrimental. There's there's no doubt about it. It's, it the, it's kind of, you know, it's a kind of a, a bit of a dark hole that people can't seem to get out. And what happens is that in the different areas of the brain, if we had a nice, I'm able to draw this out, be able to show you more. But the, when you're in the kind of lower depth of the brain, the kind of the primitive, the emotional part of the brain, what's known as the limbic system, when you're in that part of the brain more and you're working from there, it's more likely to be obsessional. It's more likely to be negative, and it's a, it's a very much of, a, of an evolutionary trait. It's a survival trait because it's exactly what's needing to happen when the saber-toothed tigers were roaming around the caves hundreds of thousands of years ago. We needed to be negative. We need to run away from these things. It's fantastic in those days, of course, but now we live in 21st century Britain. We don't have too many wild animals roaming around anymore, thankfully. But we still have these issues and we still have this. And one of the key aspects of why we haven't changed, and I always kind of joke in a, in a kind of black humour way, it keeps me in a job. Um, but it's recognising that the, the, the primitive part of the brain, the subconscious, has no intellect. It doesn't know where we are. It doesn't know that we're sitting in the UK, whatever, in the 21st century. We do, and what I mean by we is the prefrontal cortex, which is a little area that sits at the front of the brain, the kind of the conscious part, the working memory, you might kind of term it as. We know exactly where we are. We're rational, we're intellectual adults, but it's a tiny, tiny proportion um, compared to the rest of the brain, if you like. And as you know, the vast majority of the brain is habitual. The vast majority of the things that we do are habitual. So when this big old machine that's driving us forward has no intellect, it's not looking to change, then if you are, going back to your point, of course, if you are feeling a little bit more de- or feeling sort of depressed or you're anxious or you can't seem to get yourself out of these issues or whatever it is, then often you try to think your way out of it and all you do is dig that hole deeper and dig it deeper and deeper. And then, of course, what happens is you have to go for help to try and get out of there, to go to some an expert who knows how to take you out of that. And this is the key aspect in terms of the solution-focused approach that I spoke about, the solution-focused process, sorry. Most people think they have to, if you're at work and you've got a problem and you've lost some money and the business has lost a couple of percent, you go around the table and you talk about the problem, you dissect the problem to make sure that that isn't, it doesn't happen again next year. Perfect. When you go in your brain, 
you think you do the same and it's not, it's the exact opposite. You need to focus on what you do want to do, not what you don't want to do. Sounds a very obvious thing, and if you say that to anyone, I say that to you, you're like, well, of course, yeah, I'm looking for what I don't want, I'm looking for what I do want. You walk around any business and speak to people, and what they're talking about, how fed up they are, how this isn't happening, how stressed they are, how this process isn't working, how this didn't get it, how they didn't get their bonus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these different things of what's not going right. None of them are talking about what they want to do and how they're going to make a change. Because it's kind of a strange sort of thing. It seems a little bit kind of out there. But you want to move yourself away from problems. You need to focus on what you do want, not what you don't want. And that's a, a, a skill that needs to be learned for various reasons, the brain is a problem-focused thing. It's a problem-focused thing. It needs to be for survival. Um, most of the actions are problem-focused and negative, and it's very important. That's what it's allowed us all to to um, to be here today. We'd have died out as a species many years ago, many many years ago, if we, if we didn't have that problem-focused aspect and that and that kind of survival instinct first before we we meant uh, and moved on anywhere else. So it's important to recognise that and important to recognise these aspects. Um, but to move forward, it's so important that we focus on what we do want rather than what we don't want. That, that sounds quite similar to what, uh, I don't know if I'm getting off subject, but like in um, the the Chimp Paradox book, they mm-hmm. talk about that kind of survival part of our brain and actually trying to switch that bit off when yeah. we need it and turn it back on when we need it on. And, and that no, absolutely. Quite, yeah, it's exactly it. No, Chimp Paradox is a good book, actually. Yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some good stuff in it. Definitely. So I suppose this is a kind of a, a double barrel shotgun in a way that like, uh, well, that's probably a very bad reference, but it, <laughs> it's, um, you, you kind of, you think about, you know, your personal emotional well-being, but also, you know, let's say if I owned a business or that well, any of the listeners own a business, it's how their business can impact on their on their staff as well and and how not manage it could impact their business so uh, from a from a business point of view and maybe the economy you know what what's the kind of impact of not managing emotional well-being mental health stress etc oh it's tremendous i mean it's absolutely tremendous the figures are out there i mean it's they're very very common the amount of lost hours uh, the amount of lost money to the to the economy, but people don't always personalise that, and business owners don't always personalise that. They kind of think it's someone else. I remember even in the early days when I went to speak to businesses, they almost take staff retraining, the absenteeism, or or the high staff turnover that they have. They almost just because it's being run for so long, they take it as a business cost, along with their phones and their cars and their wages, etc. It's like, oh yeah, we've just that's what we deal with. It's High staff turnover, that's just the business we're in. And of course, there's always going to be some aspect of that absenteeism. People are going to get ill. There's always going to be these things that happen. Of course there is. But it can be reduced tremendously if people just take on. One of the latest articles, actually, that I wrote is, can you have a happy workforce and a productive workforce? Because often, of course, things are changing. Now, it's a bit like, you know, let's just hammer these people into the ground, get as much of it out of them as we can, then we can throw them in the heap and get some more in. But a happy, a happy person is a more productive person and it goes into the, the production of serotonin and the chemicals that we all produce and it's a reasonable kind of, um, description within that. But the basics of it is 
uh, that if you become happier, you produce the chemicals that we all have. The serotonin is directly linked to motivation, to happiness. It pushes you into the intellectual cortex. It makes you a better version of you. It takes you out of that lower limbic system that we were talking about earlier there. So literally, a happier person is more motivated. And of course, what are businesses looking for? Motivated people, because what does that mean? They're more productive, which means they're going to have a better profit uh, line in terms of the business. So a happy workforce is directly linked to that. And there's been many, many studies done now, of course, as you know, and, and some decent ones uh, recently as well, to show that if you actually look after your staff, then they want to work for you. They are more productive and they become better versions, as I keep saying, you know, of themselves. And then ultimately, everyone does better. So it's it's something that businesses are, are certainly, that I'm noticing anyway uh, across the UK, is that businesses are noticing this. Smart businesses are noticing that if they invest in their people, uh, that that everything is going to, to rise, including their profits. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think, I think that kind of investing in people that goes so far I always um, use a reference that I talk back to I, one of the first kind of job well the first job I got in health and safety was in a, a, a locally well-known manufacturing uh, plant mm. that was well known for being one of the best paid in the county um, so I was very lucky to get a job there um, mm. but actually everyone that worked there the only one thing they always used to moan about was that they um, they no longer get hampers at Christmas <laughs> uh, and and that that slight change or that slight of reduction, they felt mm-hmm. like they weren't invested in. Um, That's then, it. They didn't feel as valued. Yeah, exactly. And then you start talking about you know what, why else, and you start trying to drill down at it. Is that they, they weren't receiving any training and stuff like that. And I find mm-hmm. sometimes from a health safety point of view, sometimes it's it's good to send people on training um, just so they feel invested in. That's um, exactly it, yeah. and that's part of the, the, the issue around presenteeism. The, the actual if, course, if, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. If, if people are not, if people don't feel valued, if they don't have that sense of self-worth, it's self-esteem to an extent, but that sense of, of worth and value within a business, then they're not going to give their all. You know, it's not about giving every single thing all day, every day. You know, people have got a life to live, but it's about being as productive as they should be at work. And if somebody feels valued, if somebody feels that the business is going the extra mile for them and actually interested in their welfare, then people are going to turn up motivated and go, do you know, I like being here. I like who I work with. People are generally positive. People are generally good. We're going in a good space. I've got time. And I know this seems a bit like utopia, you know, but my bosses get time to speak to me, etc. But there's plenty of businesses doing this. So it's not a black art. It's not something that's not able um, to do. And these businesses are profitable and you will find that most of them are extremely profitable or at least more profitable than if they weren't doing that. So it it really is um, time for, I would say, in my humble opinion, the the business owners and and, and people that are running businesses, executive teams, etc., start to recognise that investing in their people is everything. It's all it is. A business is its people. If it doesn't have people, it's just brick and mortar. It's just a, it's just a building. So that's all a business is. It's just people. So the more effective, the more happy, the more productive, and the more content that these people are, then the better, the better everything's going to be. I um I remember watching a I think it was a video by Simon Sinek a while yes. ago, and he yeah. said um I really like a lot of the stuff he says, but he said something that that stuck with me, and uh, and I've used it quite a lot in delivering like. Um, IOSH managing safety portion and things like that where stress kind of comes up quite a lot in I think it's, it's in the syllabus 
so it comes up. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and, and I know I used the, the one line from him that was, um, you know, wh- when was the last time you asked one of your employees, how are you, and actually cared and listened about the response? <laughs> and I think that's a really powerful question. And mm-hmm. and I think actually the times I've answered it, the managers, the line managers have come back. They don't, they don't say that they don't care, but I think you just see in their faces that they're, they kind of think, well, yeah. When I say, "Hey, David, how are you?" It's mm. it's normally just being polite because then I'm going to say, mm-hmm. "Is that assignment that you said you were going to write or or something mm-hmm. like that?" Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it can be a problem. There's no doubt about that. But we have to be, we have to give some love to these poor old managers that um, are getting that have been halved in the, the numbers and they're and they're given more and more to do. And, and every time there's a new thing that needs to be implemented, given over to them. So. Yeah, I mean, we need to give them some love, of course, as well. But yeah, th- there's no doubt about it that um, it, listening is important. I can't remember who told me this again. I, I can't remember if it was one of my clinical uh, people that taught me or not. Or maybe it was just something I read. But the, it, the, kind of the point goes is that we've got two ears and one mouth, and we should use them in that ratio. So obviously, in, in other words, we should listen twice as much as we speak. Um, so we should take that time to really listen to the people that, that are, are there. And, and of course, the position of management, one of the reasons um, they're getting paid more uh, is to listen, is to be there to support the, the subordinates and the staff, the team members or whatever it is. Yeah, that's a great, that's a real good point. I've heard, I've heard that one before as well. Yeah. Hmm. Listen twice as much as you talk. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't work well if you host a podcast, though, but other than that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So I think actually that's a really good point when you said about managers need some love. I always kind of thought that that middle management role especially is a, is a horrible, horrible position. <laughs> it certainly is, yeah. Uh, it can you, be anyway. You're given all the crap. You, you're, you're that one that one line of defence between like the senior managers and the, and the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you're, and you're trying to be a bit of both, you know. You're trying to be kind of in with the lads but also... Up with the senior leaders and exactly you're, you're paid five percent or eight percent more so nothing really yeah exactly so there's a challenge all right yeah. so do you think do you think like what could what could businesses do do differently i suppose we've, we've kind of touched on it but like things that that i suppose we could all take away like or immediate things because i find it's a very complex it's a very complex subject but hmm. I, I find even and you might correct me if I'm wrong, but I find even GPs don't really fully understand how to deal with this stuff. So you no. know, maybe expected businesses and CEOs that are there to be a business leader, not mm. a doctor. How no, exactly. How do they deal with it? Yeah, I mean, it's the same sort of thing I always used to say with GPs. I think GPs do a fantastic job. Of course, the the clues in the title, GP, they're general practitioners. They're not experts. In, in, in mental health and vast majority of them obviously have to signpost you know and that's fair enough but what businesses really need to understand is that there isn't a magic pill there isn't that one thing everybody's going what's the thing i need to do you know i'm really busy i've got to do this i'm really busy i just need to, if you could just tell me what it is i need to do i can just do it and go on with it it needs to be i don't really like the term cultural change of these guys it's a bit of a big kind of well-worn title in it or, or you know comment i don't really like that so much but yeah you need to realize that yeah and the core principles of change there's quite a few of them but one of them is repetition now for some reason we're well aware physically that if you want to change your body shape or you want to run the marathon next year 
then you need to physically train for it. You want to change your body shape and sculpt it or whatever you want to do. Then you need to go to the gym, not once, not twice, um, but two, three, four times a week. So that we're well aware that if you want to sculpt that muscle on the body that you need to do, you need to repeat it. For some reason, we're, because we're so busy and the life's this and all that, etc., we're looking for that magic thing that's somehow going to change. And the mind or the brain, of course, isn't a muscle, but it's a good analogy to kind of continue with and think that it needs to be exercised. It needs to be changed. And it's ba the basis is it's called neuroplasticity. Uh, the mind is very malleable. We used to think it was a bit like porcelain and it doesn't really kind of change, but the mind is very malleable. So you can teach yourself new tricks. You can move forward. You can do different things. But of course, they often take time. We're creating new pathways in the brain. That's what's happening. We're, we're creating new areas. So it's important that you see that and understand that and, and understand that there isn't a quick fix. So bosses and, 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 and business owners just need to recognise that just implement this. Spend a little bit of money and see and reap the rewards. And of course, it's about, like, well, where's my return on investment? And, and you know, I can prove it. You know, we can prove that, of course, with the case studies and the research that we've done. So it's, it's all there now. And I understand bosses and people who own businesses, etc., uh, and shareholders need to see some sort of evidence. It makes sense. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But recognising that there, there generally isn't a quick fix. These lunch and learns and, and information, I often say information isn't implementation. In other words, telling somebody something doesn't mean they're going to implement it. Standing up on a lunch and learn, and I've done them myself, of course, standing up on lunch and learn, or the half-day workshops, they're very good, of course they are, but it doesn't, most of the time, evoke any change within people because they're not implementing it. They just intellectualise it, they understand it, they're intelligent people, they go, oh yeah, that makes sense, oh yeah, I don't need to do that, and they never actually go ahead with it. And that's why our programme, our signature programme, is six months long. We work with the people, we train them, we train the key individuals, within that business and then we coach and mentor them for that six months not a huge amount of time of course because they've still got to do their job and i say these poor old middle managers have got a million and one things to do we understand that but to take them out of that space sometimes and of course the thing is this is not to give them another thing it's to give them freedom it's so that eventually they get the key in inverted commas to what they need to do I start to understand what's necessary to move forward, how to release what, they, the, what they're holding on to in a solution-focused process and move forward to the space which is actually easier and better. So it's not about getting another tool for the toolbox. It's about kind of releasing that and getting the key, if you like, and releasing it all so that they're able to allow themselves to, to move forward, to become that better version of themselves and help others. Because we want them to move up the scaling if they're a four and they end up as a seven or eight, and that's brilliant, it means that they're more productive, it means that they're easier going, it means that they're a better husband or wife or partner or brother, mother, sister, whatever, it doesn't matter. It means that they're a better person. So they're better at home, they're better at work, they're better on the football field or the sports field or, or the jogging or whatever it might well be. They become a better version of themselves. So it's about recognising that and recognising that change does take a little bit of time. It doesn't take forever, but it takes a little bit of time. Yeah, I think you're kind of touching on um, something that I, I heard from uh, Professor Scott Geller, 
where he mm. said so, so tried to find out the uh, the difference between education and training and um and i've said mm. it before on a podcast but he, what he, he said just what it made me laugh but two it stuck with me he said what's the difference between education and training and the guy who's talking to you said I, I don't know um he said well would you prefer your kid to go on sex education or sex training <laughs> and the guy obviously <laughs> laughed and went sex education and I just thought that is such a good way, and I suppose that's kind of what you were talking about. Learn <laughs> yeah. is is education and informing your, your your teams, but it's not necessarily the training or the coaching that you're talking about. Yes, yeah, that's that. That's good. I like that. Yeah, um, it's good. Uh, but it? yeah, it is. It, it's yeah. If you want to implement change, there's some key aspects to it, and there really is. But repetition is key. And that means that you need to be doing whatever the thing is often. And again, it's, it's, it's fun. You know, I always I say, oh, do I, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to be this person. I don't know if I, you know, I need to learn this new thing. And it's quite simple. I say, do you want to be a better version of you? And there's very, very few people who don't want to be better than themselves because that's what human nature is. It's about increasing life. So do you want to be a better version of you? Would you like to be easier? Would you like to have a better day? Would you like to have more? Would you like to stop being so tired? You know, would you like to have more energy? All these different things. And, and who says no to that? Virtually no one. So um, it's about seeing that aspect and, and recognising that, that what we teach is a foundational approach. It's, it's understanding that we understand that what human nature is about. We're all individuals. Of course we are. We're all unique. But really fundamentally, we're all the same. So learning how to change the core principles of change and understand what that is and how to implement them importantly, of course, that's what gives people change. That's what that's what creates um, lasting success. So, so with with that in mind, then does is is there value in in these kind of mental health first aid courses? Or, uh, do they have value, but as a single absolutely. Path? Of a <clears throat> yeah, I mean, they, they absolutely have value, um, but they, they are they are what they are. They are of um, of, of the space that they're in, uh, and they're not trying to be anything else that they're not. Of course, they're, they're there uh, for people who are interested and people who uh, it's an important uh, place and an important spot and what they do. There's no doubt about it. But it's there to signpost. Uh, it's not there to create experts, uh, and that's fine. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a very, very valuable tool, and a very, very valuable space because it's people on the ground. It's the eyes and the ears. It's when everybody's getting on with what they're doing and the difficulties and challenges that they're having. It's people who have either been trained specifically or have that interest in it and they want to be part of that. And they think, do you know what? I think such and such is a little bit of an issue there. You know. And that they know that they're able to come to them, someone to speak to. Going back to that point I was saying earlier, sometimes people have a, have a challenge of who they who can speak to. You know, I can't speak to my boss because then he might write this down in a report that I've got a problem and I don't really want to speak to him or her. So sometimes it's like a challenge. So if people really trust that they can go to this mental health first aid and, and really be listened to, which again, as we spoke about, is really important. That's a fantastic thing. There's no doubt about it. Uh, what we do is we deliver, um, we're doing this with... Um, a few businesses actually, as we deliver a kind of a phase two, if you like, as well. So mental health first aid is there and it gives a certain amount of work, or understanding, sorry. And then what we do is we kind of, the phase two, so to speak, is the CPA, the Cognitive Performance Approach, is of the champions that are already there. It's then training them up a bit more, so that training them up a lot more actually, so that it's implementing, so that there's, they can then uh, 
really facilitate and, and create change themselves and be the champions within the business. So, and that's working well. So, so what does um, I, I was going to say like what does what does good look like? But I suppose we've kind of explained that. So, I suppose is is what does bad look like? Is that is that an answerable question or not? I suppose I'm putting you um, on the spot. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so what does bad look like? Well, in what kind of context would you say? So, so if I if I own a business and I listen to this podcast, for example, and I, and I go, hmm. well, I don't I don't think I've got a problem. Is right, it okay. that I don't know if I've got a problem, or you know, how do you spot that kind of stuff? Yeah, so there's like yeah, absolutely. So I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, so it's recognizing uh, sector specific or generalizing. Of course, is your absenteeism levels high? Um, uh, uh, do you have a high staff turnover? And there are figures that you can get from the national statistics in all different places, of course, um, the government. Um, so if they're higher than the, the UK average, or if they're higher than other people within the, uh, uh, your sector, then it's probably something you need to do about. But again, if, if you remember, really what we're doing is we're moving away from um, just, that's dealing with one aspect. That's dealing with, if we go back to scaling, the zero to three people. That's dealing with the people who, and some of the fours and fives perhaps, but people who are, are really not happy, they're, they're signed off from work and, and all that kind of bit. It's, it's, it's only really dealing with one say, chunk of society. A very, very important chunk, of course, but it's only dealing with one. So what we want to do is kind of turn it around and, and, and sort of say to the business owner, do you want to perform better? And of course, what are they going to say? Yes. It's pretty obvious. Every business wants to perform better. So what we then do is, if you think, fantastic. So we use the facilitative approach. We use the psychology. We use the neuroscience. We use the, the technical support and, and the data that we have to push these to push everybody better. So all the zeros and ones become threes and fours. All the fives and sixes become sevens and eights. And the tens become ten pluses or whatever it is, if, if that makes sense. So it's recognising that it's about raising performance of everyone. It's not about dealing with the problems that are there. Yes, of course, the statistics and the data are there, and that's fantastic to show if you do have a high staff turnover. But the presenteeism is three to four times more prevalent than absenteeism. But it's not that noticeable. And presenteeism, as I said, of course, is people at work. Um, they're there, but they're not working so well. So for every 10 people that you have off in your business, there's 30 to 40 statistically saying, um, that are at work but they're not performing uh, as well as they should do. And it's very difficult to spot them. Some of them will be quite obvious, some of them won't be. So it's about saying, right, do you want to be better as a whole? Here's how you do it and become a better version of yourself, whatever space that you are within uh, that scaling if you want to use that. You, you kind of touched on, on like that kind of return on investment. So I, d I don't know if you can talk any more around that, like case studies and stuff around, you know, to what is the return on investment? Obviously, we've touched on it like like briefly, but that, does that extend into like figures as well? Can, can you actually perform better? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of research that I've been part of, the clinical research that uh, we brought in, and there's, and there's also research through uh, the, the different projects that we've been doing. Uh, and uh, we can we can comfortably tell businesses that we can uh, basically give them 20% uh, on, on their bottom line. If they go through the programme and they go through the, the different aspects of the programme, then at least that 20% uh, they can uh, increase on their bottom line. And of course, businesses can do a lot with that. And it's a big amount. It's a huge amount, in fact. 
a lot of people will say, where the heck is that going to come from? Um, but it's about using that process that we spoke about, um, that we spoke about previously. It's about recognising, about moving everybody up the scaling, if you like. And as I say, we have plenty of, of data now to, to prove that this is, this, is, this is the way forward and this is what we can do. Is there, is there like um, evidence of like like reduction in in claims and stuff like that? So not just from like a not not just claims on stress, but like overall claims. Like because it just when you when, the way you talk about it, David, just sounds like a lovely place to work. Do you know what I mean? And I mm. always find I always say that you know to me culture is is just everybody wants to be at work because I think if, if everybody wants to be at work, then everyone inherently is safer, and then mm-hmm. and then claims would start to drop. I, I, mm. Is there any kind of tangible research around that? Yeah, I mean, one of the contracts we have is with a, a worldwide insurer, actually. We have a, a large contract with them. And they have, of course, plenty of data, and I'm not uh, privy to all of that and by any stretch of the imagination. But yes, the, the reason why uh, we have a three-year contract with them to work with their businesses in the UK and Ireland uh, is because of that, to reduce premiums, because they can understand it's not always easy to spot stress, of course, or always to, easy to earmark it to a specific event. But they recognise that it's a huge thing and that mental health is a huge thing. And that's one of the reasons why we're on there, they're, um, we're a partner uh, of them on the solutions panel, um, is because they they recognise that the claims can be um, reduced by going through these programmes. Well, that, that, that's nice as well. I think uh, Christian, um, with the podcast to come out, I think next week he talks about that as well, how like insurers are being... Um, uh, a, a bit more proactive around that stuff, and that, that's good to mm-hmm. that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's brilliant. So, kind of, what, what do you? Um, so, we've kind of spoke a lot about business, but like maybe like personally, what what are the kind of things that that say I could do to spot thing problems within myself, or or if I'm struggling? So, I think I think sometimes some people would know that they're struggling. Would is it possible yeah. people wouldn't know they're struggling? Yeah, I suppose it is, and sometimes things can, it's almost, I remember again in my clinical days, people would come in and say something like, oh, I've been feeling, I've been feeling absolutely fine, and all of a sudden it's just hit me, and now I can't do anything, I can't leave the house, and all these, you know, awful things that's happened to this person. You know, it generally takes time, we talk about that stress bucket, so every time you have a negative thought, you worry about something, a little droplet goes in that bucket, if you like, we can imagine that's in the, in the depths of the brain. And the more we think negatively, the more the bucket fills up. And of course, eventually what's going to happen is that bucket overflows. So the, the analogy goes that when people, are, or the point goes that when people come to see you in a clinical point, or the people come to see their manager, for example, and say, look, I'm really just not coping. Their bucket is overflowing, or their bucket, if you like, is full. So, yes, I mean, do you feel different? Most of the, some of the, kind of the, the signs to spot, really, people can feel quite tight-chested. People can feel just a little bit fed up. They can feel, of course, maybe a little bit more than just a little bit fed up. Um, they can feel just a bit different. And um, Probably a, a, a common one, actually, is that they're not sleeping well. Um, often people will go to sleep quite easily and they wake up at 3, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning their brain's racing and they can't go back to sleep again and they'll drop off at half past 6 and the alarm will go off at half 7 or 7 o'clock and it feels as if you haven't slept at all. That's quite common, it's generally uh, related to anxiety. Sometimes people will sleep all the time or you'll find they'll go, I'm really tired, I need to have a nap all the time, I'm just sleeping a lot uh, and uh, going through a negative REM period basically, uh, REM sleep period there. 
uh, and they're more likely to feel the, the feelings of depression if you like feeling a little bit low it doesn't have to be depression doesn't have to be anxiety but you're feeling more of the symptoms of that of course symptoms of depression or or, or, or all that kind of thing or feeling low um lack of lethargy lack of motivation um can't be bothered smiling, can't be bothered going out, etc. And of course, anxiety, very heightened awareness, anxious, feeling a little bit um, off when you're in public situations, that type of thing. So, I mean, that's going down obviously the, the path quite far there, but it's just recognizing anything that's different within yourself. And of course, what do we do to change? That's what everybody wants to know. They go, right, that's fine. Well, I can see what's wrong with me, but what do I need to do to change? And this is quite key. And it's universal and it's not rocket science. What you need to do is create serotonin. So serotonin really is the wonder chemical. It's what we all need. It's, it's really, it's everything. Now we have lots of chemicals, of course, that we produce. We produce serotonin, we produce endorphins, <laughs> dopamine, noradrenaline, etc. But serotonin is the wonder chemical that we all need. And the thing is, we've been producing it for, I don't know, but 1.5 million years. We've been producing it forever. So how do we do this? How do we get more of it? So I spoke about before. How do we make sure that we produce more of it? Because it's fine knowing that we need it. But what would we do? So very much call this the three P's. It's physical activity, positive interaction and uh, positive thinking. And as well as those three P's, what we want to sort of think at before that is not only should we think positively, but we want to make sure that we don't think negatively. Again, that negative thoughts, if we go back to that analogy of the bucket, stress bucket, the more we think negatively, the more the bucket fills up. So, get quash that, recognise where your thoughts are taking you, and make sure that you think positively. When we imagine when you walk around at businesses, you can see are people talking positively, talking about their issues. So there we are, positive thinking. The other two areas are physical activity and positive interaction. So physical activity really is such an important one, as I say, we've sort of talked about before, uh, I know we're, not, we're moving sort of more onto the business, but in the clinical days, when people are at their lowest and are coming to see me, they say, oh, I used to go out on my bike, I used to love mountain biking, I used to love kayaking, or I always used to run, but I just can't be bothered anymore, I can't do it. By encouraging them to go out and creating more of that serotonin, they become better versions of themselves. They're creating the chemicals which pushes them out to the higher areas of the mind, allows them to become more motivated, allows them to make more intellectual decisions, not be so negative, etc. And positive interaction, being out with people, it's, it's key. It really is. You know you feel better when you go out for lunch with your friends you haven't seen for a while, when you meet up with people, you meet up with family for Sunday lunch, all these different things, that, that feeling of well-being you have, it's the interaction. And of course, this is an evolutionary trait. It's exactly what we've been doing forever. Uh, tribes, you're always safer in a tribe than you were as an individual. Um, it, it's quite easy um, and to recognise that your safety was, or your, the, your life was going to be much more prolonged in a group than as an individual. All the different things that we got rewards for, eating, uh, procreation, of course, uh, being around other people, it feels good. You want to do that, the exercise, the hunter-gatherer aspect, going and catching and, and eating the prey, if you like, of course you felt better. Now, the, the, the primitive man, if you like, they didn't understand what all this was, but they got some sort of reward. They were rewarded within themselves. And they kept on doing it. And that's, of course, why we are here now. But it's neuroscience that tells us this. 
It's neuroscience now from the 70s, uh, roughly speaking, since the fMRI, fMRI scans were in, uh, introduced, and um, that we can light up the parts of the brain and we can see the changes that are happening. And we can recognise now that these things we've been doing since year dot, if we get out and replicate them in this modern world, this 21st century, this capitalist society that we live in, if we can replicate these simple things, we'll make change and we'll make lasting change. One of the key aspects is people don't do it for long enough. And that takes me back to that point about repetition and the neuroplasticity. People are not doing these things for long enough. They want quick fixes. They want to feel better straight away. And that's why people can move into areas of, of, the, of the life that they don't want to be in because they want to get quick fixes, whatever that might well be. Well, that, that, that's awesome. Those three P's, I like that. They're quite simple stuff, isn't it, really? Yes, it really is. It's simple. As I always say, it's not rocket science. Change is a very, very simple thing to do. It's just not uh, it's an easy thing to do. So it's just not always simple to implement. We all know how to uh, lose weight. You just eat a little bit less and exercise more. We all know we shouldn't have that glass of red wine on a school night or whatever it is, but people still do it. We all know what to do, but people don't do it. And that's the key bit. It's not rocket science. The, the, the key aspect is a change. Again, going back to that point, again, you spoke about how, how, why, how can we get businesses to change? How can we do this? You know, what are the key things? And it's, a, it's getting them to understand, it's getting the business owners and, and executive teams and bosses and whatever to understand that the change is the implementation. The change isn't the information. It's simple. The change, the, the information is simple. The implementation is the part that takes a bit of time. And if you just give it time, you'll change. Because the bodies and the brains want to be better versions. We want to be better. We're increasing creatures. That's who we are. So if we get that across, the simplicity of it is almost the problem, if you like. Because it's like, oh, that's easy. Oh, I can do that tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes, of course. Yeah, that's that's true, and I mean, you know, it's, it's it's easy to eat eat less, and and when you when you mentioned about the red wine, I thought exactly what Is I that, did last. Leftover from the weekend, I thought I don't normally yeah. drink in the week, but now nah, yeah. I don't want to waste it. Waste it? Can't pour it down the sink, can you? Exactly. Don't drink it. Uh, I I always find like kind of, and I don't know whether it's part of part of that process you were talking about in the three P's, but I've found like. Since I've kind of discovered like self-awareness, you know, being self-aware, for, for me personally, I'm I quite from like silly things that I went through as a child. I think I I've got like this constant desire to be uh, like complimented like all the time mm. and and be, and be needed. Um, mm -hmm. And and I have to kind of remind myself that 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 is it because nine times out of ten I I always default to the negative. I always default to think that somebody is is so let's say someone criticizes a piece of work that i've asked them to provide feedback it's mm. always like a personal real thing and i think since being self-aware i've been able to like address that yes and then and then actually yeah. get it from a positive point of view mm. yeah absolutely that that's quite um psychoanalytical psychodynamic and a freudian based process that you're coming from there and uh, yes, that has basically been probably been implemented by your parents um, by mistake. But um, we can talk about that separately if you want. Um, but of course, if you're nice and self-aware, uh, then that's great. Self-awareness is everything, and growth and, and awareness is everything. But but yeah, that's probably uh, been programmed in a Freudian sense by your parents, so of course, um, uh, by mistake. Um, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I definitely think it was from the parents, but I'll, I'll, have, to start, I'll have to start paying you if we carry on talking about that. <laughs> so I suppose if we kind of bring it to a close, then. so let's say we're, we're listening to this, this podcast and thinking, do you know what, um, I, I really like David and I'd like to kind of um, get in contact with you and find out what DRM does. Um, you've, you've kind of spoke about it already, but you know, how would the listeners kind of approach you and what would that mean? you know what how does that process kind of work and stuff like that what did drm do essentially yeah yeah as i say we 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 help people become better versions of themselves through the, the sort of research-based projects that we, that we run in programs that we run um or we're taking great change and making great change within individuals so uh it can phone the office of course uh, if that's easy, you can email me direct. I'm happy to, speak to, to take that or, or speak to uh, any of the trainers. Um, I don't mind. But, uh, of course, uh, the details, I'm sure, will be there. I can give you the, the phone number and an email address just over here as well, just to make it nice and easy for people. So if they want to phone us, we're based in London, although we work uh, across the UK and Ireland, uh, soon uh, Europe uh, and, and the North America as well as we move on. But the telephone number is 020 36335753. People can email me. I'm happy to email me direct, which is david.mclean, and that's david.mclean at drmgroup.deltaromeomikegroup.co.uk. So david.mclean at drmgroup.co.uk. And then, yeah, I'll be happy to chat. And uh, of course, uh, chat over the phone, chat over Skype, chat over Zoom or, or meet up and, and, and just kind of explore what people want to do. And that's really what it's all about. It's not about forcing anything on anyone. If businesses are interested in becoming better, becoming more profitable, they're interested in just finding out a little bit more and what the different areas of, the, of what we can offer and, and how we, we always offer bespoke packages. There's, there's a basis of what we do because, of course, you wouldn't be surprised that we know what we're talking about. But of course, every business has different issues and a different sort of space. So we, we will we'll always make sure that the, the programme is bespoke for them as well. So, yeah, just get in touch. We'll, we'll put all that, that email address and website and phone number in the um, in the description as well. Cool. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. David. That, that was absolutely awesome. Wow, that was absolutely awesome. You know, thank thank you, David, again. Maybe you'll listen back to this. Depends on if you like the sound of your own voice. It definitely takes some getting used to. But if you are listening, thank you very much. That was absolutely awesome. Um, you know, some real, real honest information there um, and some real kind of honest stories as well. And some real, you know, tips and tricks that you could take away with you. You know, the three Ps stuck out in my head. Real simple stuff, you know. Physical activity is something we can start tomorrow. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been struggling the last couple of weeks to get my ass out of bed in the mornings and actually go for a run. But, you know, I can 100% guarantee that the few times I have done it, it just makes me feel so much better throughout the day. And it really does genuinely um, just make me more motivated. Um, and it must be, you know, like like David said, it must be that wonder chemical, the serotonin. So yeah, it's, there's definitely some warrant in that, some some gold dust there. Positive interaction, you know, in the world as it is today, especially you know Britain with our stiff upper lip, that's something that's um, tough to come by. But I find I find if you're positive, you know, nine times out of ten, you'll get positive interaction. I um I spent a day a few months back just actively smiling. 
which is very strange. I saw it on social media. Um, it said, just try and just smile big all day. So, so I did. I did. I was walking a dog and just smiling. And I must have got so many smiles back. And unbelievable. And had way more conversations with random people than what I've ever, ever had in all the times I've been walking the dog and working, etc. Because people see that smile and I think they... They, f- they feel that positive interaction and maybe if they're in a bad mood it just shuts that down straight away and positive thinking is is something that's hard to to do and that's a challenge for all of us I think just to kind of you know stop ourselves from having those negative thoughts and and for me personally you know and honestly with you guys that that's a personal struggle I've had for many years um, um but and I, I'm nowhere near solved it but when you when you're aware of it you can, you know, spot the signs and stop it straight away and just take a step back and look at it and think, you know, it, is that person, you know, being personally you know, negative towards me or is it just my automatic base res- response of being negative? Is it me or is it them? And nine times out of ten, I've always found it's me, um, which is interesting. Um, you know, just, just kind of looking at yourself in the mirror and just saying, yeah, I look pretty good. It feels stupid, but hey, you know, it just no one has to hear you do they depends if you live with anyone but if you do just keep it quiet or think it at least um but yeah just just be happy with yourself and i think they're, they're much easier being said that um much easier said than it is done but there's definitely some uh, there's definitely some value there for sure and there's lots of value in that podcast as well around around kind of businesses managing stuff and you know it was an interesting point to get on to like mental health first aid because i think there's a lot of people sitting on the fence with that but like david said and you know like we've said about health and safety overall in general it's never just one thing that solves them all it's never just that magic wand that fix all your problems it's all these tiny cogs in this massive machine that is culture and safety and health and well-being and all of that come together to just create a nice place to work and i think if we just focus on being a nice place to work and and, and employing people that just want to work and be with each other and are just genuinely nice people we're probably just going to inherently create that ourselves anyway so i hope you found value in that i hope um I hope my really crackly mic from what I can hear um, listening back to that hasn't ruined it wholly for you. It's a very cheap mic and I think I'll be purchasing myself a better one. Um, But we can hear David very clearly and that's the key. So I hope you found some value in that, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to continue on with the Expert Explains. If you're listening to this and you are an expert, um, we're looking for experts in working at high asbestos confined space. So we'll get into the minutiae of it like we have done with Christian and David and we've got some more in the diary and I've got people messaging me about work at height. So if you're out there and you're listening and you've got a lot of experience of work at height, give me a shout. Hit me up on Twitter at RiskFluent or you come find me, James McPherson, on Twitter or LinkedIn, um, Facebook as well, uh, forward slash RiskFluent or James McPherson on Facebook. Come and find me, drop me a message. Anyway, I'm going to go. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Peace out, Dave. Bye.